Ringer Dish is the place for all things celebrity, from major celebrity moments like the Met Gala and the Oscars, to the weird habits of the stars you love, to refreshers on the biggest tabloid stories from the last 20 years, Ringer Dish has all the vital details. On Tuesdays, catch Jam Session with Juliet Littman and Amanda Dobbins for Royal Family Rumors, Celebrity Real Estate, and Industry Analysis. And on Fridays, listen to Tea Time with me, Kate, and Amelia for lightning fast coverage on pressing celebrity news and gossip. Check out Ringer Dish on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ride. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, wherever he sits, it's the chef's table. It's Andy Greenwald! What a kindness. What a kindness. Oh, How what's up, man? It's Thursday, so we were recording our Top Chef show today. We also have a really fun interview that I did with For All Mankind co-creator Ron Moore, who people may know from his work on Outlander and Battlestar Galactica and various Star Trek uh, offshoots, uh, Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. Ron, I mean, Battlestar is one of my favorite shows ever. Uh, as I've sort of said earlier in in the year, uh, For All Mankind definitely just took a huge leap for me in the second season. I loved the second season. If folks haven't had a chance to catch up or if maybe they wavered a little bit in the first season, I would highly recommend checking out the second season. It's pretty rare that you see a show just jump up like that. Um, you know, it's always it was always very good, but this is, I didn't think it's great now. Um, so I'm really excited. That's in the second half of our talk. We're going to talk about last night's uh, Restaurant Wars episode of Top Chef. But Andy, how are you doing? I'm good, and but I want to turn it around to you because not to blow up your spot, but Chris is on the East Coast. Currently. I am. I'm in Philadelphia visiting my mom, and I lots of love to your mom. First of all, from the whole the whole watch fam, which is just me in a room right now, and Kaya, I assume. <laughs> What's it like? What's it like being back on the streets? I, I notice you're f- experiencing humidity for the first time in a year and a half. I mean, longer because I usually come back at Christmas. So it's been it's been a minute since your boy felt the the, the sweet smell of uh, <laughs> of Philadelphia sewers that haven't been rained on in a minute. Um, uh-huh, uh-huh. But you know what? It's actually it's been it's been awesome. It's been awesome to just walk around. It's been awesome to see different different people, different streets. I would say that my Philadelphians definitely. It seems like they've just been like eating potatoes in a dark room for 12 and a half months and now they're back out and they're ready to have their Belgian wheat beers at any given moment of the day. But I support it and I'm, I'm, I'm right behind them, you know? I mean, to be fair, I think eating potatoes in a cold room is how I spent <laughs> the months between November and April for the majority of my life. So, right. I, I, you know, I don't think that, it's pandemic that's just, related. That's just that's, eagle season. <laughs> that's right. 
That's right. You don't even, at a certain point, you don't even need to cook the potatoes. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, it's just, you're so locked in. I get it. Um, before we get into Top Chef, I did want to hit one thing, although I am surprising you right. with it. Um, okay. Did you notice that after, almost directly after we recorded our podcast on Monday, and we talked a lot about the AT&T Discovery Warner Media deal, mm. it was announced that Amazon is in talks to buy MGM for, I did see that. for quite a few billion dollars. Uh, that would be um, quite a momentous purchase from Amazon, although I think if I was going to spend a couple of billion dollars on a media property, I don't know if MGM would be number one on my list to go to, but you know, it's it got is- some very valuable stuff. It's a veil. That's the main thing. I mean, you know, if if you ever ever had a day when like maybe you get a surprise like paycheck or a bonus paycheck or maybe maybe your mom greases your palm with a couple couple twenties and you're like, this is burning a hole in my pocket. Go down the store, get yourself a blow pop. And it's but it's a very dangerous feeling to be like, I want to spend this money, and then you see what they have at the store and you don't really want it, but that's what's there. That's I'm not totally. That's not fair. I mean, there's a lot of there are a lot of compelling reasons why this might make some sense. Um, but it isn't necessarily the most natural fit. I will start by saying, remember a few months ago when we were kind of going through how the pandemic had affected major media properties and what was still on the shelf, what was being held, how things were being, um, finagled and the biggest question mark, well, it began as a question mark. I think it actually was kind of a declarative end of a sentence was what was going to go on with the new bond movie. And the answer was, Nothing. They're going nope. to release this in theaters. And, and the there reason was a conversation gonna... about whether or not Apple might buy it, right? Exactly. Because that kind of made sense. It fits into their overall programming strategy of let's make stuff people like, we hope. Right. <laughs> um, but MGM does not have a natural connection to a streaming service the way the Warner Brothers movies could be just put on HBO Max or the Disney movies on Disney Plus, obviously. There was also just, at the end of the day, the price point for a single movie that would eventually be available to for the for an exclusive window for a major motion picture made no sense. It made no sense for Amazon or anyone, Apple, to shell out a ton of money for one movie in a long-running series that they would lose exclusivity to. And frankly, it made no sense for MGM, which unlike these, not leveraged, but spread out businesses, needs to make a mint on a Bond movie in order to continue to exist. And now this seems to have turned into a larger negotiation. Yeah, I don't know what... So one thing that sort of pops up occasionally when you read about these mergers, and as we've seen, is these streaming services launch, and then you're like, oh, fam, you you launched Paramount Plus, and and Yellowstone's not on it. Or, you know what I mean? Like, there are still, like, lots of complicated deals, independent studios, or, you know, production shingles of studios that make shows, and then maybe sell those shows to other places. You know, so there's a lot of complications. I don't know necessarily that Amazon buys... MGM, and then the next day they get to start, they can do the Bond Expanded Universe long-form series is like maybe they're doing around the Ryan, Jack Ryan, Tom Clancy-verse, but I don't know that they can't. They, I think that in specifically that's an odd one because it is, the movies are distributed by MGM, they're controlled by the Broccoli family, which still sounds made up, but um, Barbara Broccoli, I believe the daughter of, of the elder Broccoli, whose name I'm blanking on. Albert R. Broccoli, yeah. yes. What a cool name. Are are the longtime stewards of the franchise, right? And so they would have to sign off on anything involving Bond. That said, this is a lot of money. Amazon has deep pockets. Anything is workable. And I guess the idea is, I mean, that was the thing that stood out to me too. It's Amazon makes movies already. They don't necessarily need another studio. So what are they getting out of this? And the articles kind of led with 
it's the deep bench of titles mm-hmm. and IP, which you could look at two ways. You could look at it as the way all the studios are, which is everything in our library is potentially developable into something that could make us money today. It's just a question of hooking it up with the right talent. That's what every studio is doing. I know this from personal experience, and we also know it because look at the output on the not, I mean, the Marvel and non-Marvel output on Disney Plus. And that bench includes some, you know, fairly well-known properties, Bond. I saw, you know, they made the Fargo show. They make the Handmaid's Tale show as well. The second piece of it, I think it's, it's worth noting, is the library play, which is to say that the movies that are on Amazon, Amazon doesn't, other than the movies that it itself has made in the last few years, Amazon doesn't have its own bench of things just to populate its library forever the way mm-hmm. Disney does, or Warner Brothers has one of the best ones. It's one of the things that, you know, is a low-key selling point for HBO Max. By MGM, now they do. Now when you scroll through Prime, there are a bunch of movies, some very beloved, that are just not going to go away. And yeah. I think they see value in that. Yeah, um, I don't, you know, Amazon is one of the w- sort of strangest propositions in this whole streaming wars landscape because, it, you know, Apple is a tech company and Apple is a hardware company. And so everything I think it does is sort of not necessarily an act of vanity, but is sort of like, yeah, we could do this. We could not do it. For Amazon, I'm always just like, I'm not really sure why you guys need to do this. You know, and obviously they're spending a tremendous amount of money. If they spend half a billion dollars on Lord of the Rings and they spend seven or eight billion dollars on MGM, this is something that they're really serious about. That's not chump change. So um, it'll be really fascinating to see how that plays out, which is what I say at the end of every conversation we have about Hollywood news. Why don't we get into Top Chef? Because we have uh, we have this uh, Ron Moore interview coming up in the second half, and it was Restaurant Wars, which is usually the uh, the climax before the climax of every season. It's it's the merge in Survivor. It's Restaurant Wars in Top Chef, and it was uh, I would say pretty shocking. Um, while a microcosm of the way the season has gone in general, I think. Um, I was pretty surprised by the the final result. I love this episode. I want to start by saying that. Like, I know that, you know, the fourth episode of Years and Years was exceptional. Mare has had a couple of bangers. We've been lost in Le Bureau. This hour of Top Chef is one of the most purely pleasurable things that I've seen all year. I devoured it, pun intended. It was so great, and it was great on so many levels. One was, it was just great that the show can innovate. You know, I just really, a lot, shout out to the Magical Elves and all the people who make the show year after year. They do not get stuck in ruts. And they clearly saw the challenges of this pandemic season as opportunities. Because this was one of the most noteworthy and fascinating and entertaining restaurant wars in the history of the show. And at no point did I feel like it was less than because they weren't, there wasn't the, scene where they yell at the servers who were trucked in, you know, to fold napkins for them, or there wasn't the scene of the people jammed up at the maitre d' stand. This was so much more intense and focused and really, I think, ultimately kind of more respectful of the talent of these chefs and that it shined a brighter light on some of their deficiencies. So I loved it on a production level, but I also loved it. I know you had uh, our friend Sean on podcast last week Mm -hmm. and talking about does the show have a villain problem by not uh, having one. This was the purest expression of Top Chef for me, where everyone got along wonderfully and supported each other. And the things that did them in were their own flaws, mistakes, and deficiencies. They were their own villains in this episode. And I found that so much more compelling on a human level 
than had there been one great asshole in the kitchen whacking people over the head with a ladle figuratively or or literally. This is one of the first restaurant wars that I remember being like they've won based on the concept. Oh yeah. As soon as uh uh as soon as Shoda and and his team kind of settled on this Japanese uh Latin hybrid I was like this is this is a great literally a great restaurant you should start this tomorrow I would eat all the food <laughs> on this menu. And juxtapose that with the Sarah Chris team just sort of being like, we love seafood. Like, let's do that. Fish you know? question mark. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, I, I think honestly, if I were ever to go on Top Chef, and I, I wouldn't, I would just try not to talk about highlighting the flavors of whatever the region is that we are oh in. Oh my god! Like, because there's so many challenges that are already about that. That when you get to restaurant wars, like, I don't know why you would be like, we just, we just really wanted to highlight Pacific Northwest seafood. Can you imagine Chris's first quick fire as a contestant, which is showcase the regional ingredients from your home and you just present Tom with a plate with a single unpeeled potato on it? And you're like, I would just give Philadelphia a bag, of, in a bag of hers and a rolling rock and I would just be like, thank you, chef. Um, <laughs> thank you, chef. I'll, I'll show myself out. So I, I definitely think that um, the proof is in the pudding, like like the, the, that the one team sort of separated itself from the other early on. But I wanted to ask you one question. Yeah. As a sort of competition, do you know much about what happens on the night of Restaurant Wars? Like, are the judges eating 14 dishes in one night? And how much of a disadvantage of it is it to go second? It's a great question. I was keenly aware of it this episode because there was no distraction. Like, first of all, they were served more food than they generally are served in a restaurant war. It had to have taken longer. I mean, I guess it's it's intimated in past seasons that because of the crush of, you know, random customers and the filming that it it's a very long day regardless. But it felt like they were sitting in that first place for a very long time talking about things and considering things. Um, I feel like they could have been forgiven if they had broken it up over two days and just mm -hmm. like put one team in a chill room for a day, not able to, but then there would have been the argument that they would have had time to discuss and articulate and change their menu. So anyway, all that is to say, they do it. I mean, I, they eat all that food. What I was curious about was seeing if the pros, you know, the, the, this, the usual judges would have an advantage in just gastric survival over like the Amars of the world or the, or the carries who have never done this before. And probably both because they want to perform well in their duties, but also because some of it was good, may have tragically, you know, overestimated their ability to consume this food at the first restaurant and been struggling in the second. Yet, and yet... I don't know that it mattered. Dale Taldi <laughs> not only is like, keep bringing me cups of mezcal yes. at my second restaurant, made it to the last course of the second meal and said, bang, bang me right now with this ice cream course. And I have only one note, Chris. Like, you know that generally when we watch shows, we've been doing this for so long. I don't know how copious your notes are. Top Chef, sometimes I try to write down the um, dishes or the, the order in which things rolled out. I only have one note and I'd like to share it with you. This is not, sure. this was not intentional. I just wrote Dale at, at symbol, Restaurant Wars was all caps king shit <laughs> because <laughs> I respected the F out of that. And so they ate all that food and then did judges table. So Unreal. Uh, I couldn't. I, I actually, we, I have some notes here that we could break down, like what the teams were. It was Jamie Shota, Maria, and Byron went first, and they had a, a Japanese Latin hybrid. They started out with an eggplant with sesame mole. They went into a sockeye salmon with a curry. The standout that looked like I was just like I would fly to Portland right now to get the leftovers of this was the 
the tongue sandwich that Maria yeah. made with help from Shona. Hot pot. Yeah, and then they wrapped it up with this hot pot. It felt like also, crucially, they just understood the specificity of this year's Restaurant Wars and this challenge, which was you are also front of house. So you also need to all be mindful of whether or not the guests have water, whether or not they have sparkling water, whether or not they're entertained. They're all sitting facing you, not facing one another. So conversation is actually incumbent on you to make. And obviously, this is just where Maria slingshot into a new realm. Not only did she make some amazing Mm -hmm. food, but she clearly did the perfect thing, which was she was attentive and uh, good company, but not intrusive and not like making herself kind of like a distraction from the food. Now she could have done almost absolutely anything and it wouldn't have been, it would have been an improvement over what happened with the next team who just seemed to ignore that entire part of the the competition. Yeah. Let's stay on this first team for a second. Um, There was even, you know, Shota even mentioned it when the teams formed through coin tossing that sheer cooking ability. I think he was saying this in a polite way. He didn't speak, but he was like, the other team is better. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, but we're going to be fun. We're going to be team fun or whatever. Um, I think that it's a sign not only that the show tests people in a variety of ways and their skills in the restaurant industry clearly um, as they're as on Top Chef that go beyond just what you can brunoise in a kitchen or how fast you can do it. And that's important to showcase. The Maria's performance in this episode, though, and Sarah's downfall was also a reminder of the fact that this is a game. It is a competition show. And what there can be quirks of fate timing, luck, opportunity that will affect the final outcome. I mean, I think over the course of talking about the show, we've often come back to the fact that like the best cooks find a way and win out at the end. And that is generally borne out to be the case in you know, over the 18 seasons. But a couple of weeks ago, we were like, Maria seems awesome, but she's serving everyone giant bowls of stuff. And it just doesn't seem like she's on operating on the same level as some of the other contestants. Go to this week, she's locked in, dialed in, and it's perfect for her skill set, not just that she's personable to the judges, but that she is a team, a passionate team player who was, you know, additive to every piece of food that went out. I'd also say that the the exciting thing about this team, it wasn't just a, a high watermark for Restaurant Wars, as Tom said. It was kind of a beautiful expression of what the show has become. Because fusion as a word is kind of a dirty word in restaurant kitchens. And this wasn't that. It was Shota doing very technical, very tradition-driven Japanese meal construction mm-hmm. and being open-hearted enough to be like, you know what would really be exciting would be to put a mole under this. That's not, or put a sandwich course in the middle of it. That is not Kaiseki cuisine, but he's using the understanding of a progression of a meal and his experience doing this stuff to be like, that might be better. That might be exciting. And it was really, you know... I find it moving. I found yeah. this, that their meal moving. He also exerted a level of, at least from my viewpoint, a level of control without being an asshole about it. You know, I totally. think that, that is something that obviously all workplaces are grappling with this idea of like, can you be kind of like this occultish sort of boss? Can you run like this sort of uh, workplace committed to like utmost excellence in a high pressure situation without also being kind of a domineering asshole about it and you know i i would i would suggest that you can very easily but the the kitchen is one of the places in american mm-hmm. labor where which like that they're still catching up to that idea and most of the people that we're seeing even on this iteration of top chef have probably come up in a kitchen 
environment where somebody's yelling at them on the line, right? Like that that is that is in all likelihood like the kind of environment that they have kind of come through. And they are they are the ones who are changing the way probably kitchens work. And I just thought that Shoda very calmly was like, this will work if we do it this way. I have mm-hmm. done this kind of service before, so this is how it can go. And then everyone else in that team was able to express themselves within those parameters. I think that's exactly right. I just read um, Bill Buford, the New Yorker writer's new book, Dirt, which is about him moving with his family to Lyon, France, in the pursuit of not just like the origins of French food, um, but to become a French chef, like in his late 50s, early 60s, living there for five years and going into the brigade system. And, and, you know, to to compare American kitchens and French kitchens is basically Bane talking to Batman. You know, like, like I, I, those dudes were born in the dark. You know what I mean? And it is, it's not just the severity and intensity of the kitchens as he describes them when he goes to work in a, a, a starred Michelin restaurant. It's the absolute mask on, mask off, not in a COVID sense of life and work that is normalized there. Wherein he could be sitting at a table on a weekend, if he runs into the head chef of the restaurant and his sous chef, they'll invite him over and like order a magnum of wine and talk to him. The next day, if he ha- if his peeled potatoes, sorry, Chris, cover your ears, aren't perfectly consistent, they will just turn to him, throw them at him, throw them at the wall and be like, these are shit, you are shit, get out of my sight until you are a dead corpse, basically. Like you are yeah. nothing. Yeah. And- that's okay. It's not okay, but it is so normalized. And so the extremity of that, I mean, that that's, we're not that far away from that kind of behavior being what you do and how you learn. And then later you're like, well, I appreciate that you threw that fruit at me, sir. Like, thank you for it. And so it actually kind of probably is important for that modeling for Shota to be like a quiet, steady cheerleader. That was so different than what we saw on the other team, which was just mercenary style. Yeah. You know? Not because not they're bad people. No, not at but all. Because I mean, they just I think- weren't, well, also, I think what happened on the other team is that there was no higher, not even a hierarchical system. There was just no decision making going on. And, and you know, I, I obviously, uh, I love Dawn. So it was like, for most of this episode, I was like, oh, shit, Dawn hasn't decided what to make. Dawn hasn't decided what to make. And like, let's be, let's be real. Dawn left it pretty late to, to, to like... She was still like, I'm waiting to be inspired as like people were like into the third and fourth courses of cooking. Dawn's performance was incredible because it was an individual triumph. I mean, that was wild also and and really kind of interesting too to see her creative process, how opaque it is and how she's at peace with it because something something emerges, right? Like that's kind of amazing. Yes. Um, That said, it was disastrous for a team challenge. Um, Yeah, as was was Gabe from Texas kind of deciding to do the amuse-bouche that was going to be not palate destroying, but like a huge serving of food a large serving for food coming before the first course that obviously set the the judges table off on, on the wrong foot. And here's where you see, I don't think this is exactly what you and Sean were, were discussing, but at that moment you didn't need a villain, but you needed someone to step up and say, this is a bad idea. This is not mm-hmm. an amuse-bouche. This is not in sync with what we're doing. And then, you know, the way the game has a tendency to find you or find your weaknesses one thing about Sarah this whole season has been beautiful, exciting, oddball food, but emerging from someone who did not present herself with, a, you know, she always seems almost surprised to be there. Like she just stumbled into this. And 
her her nerves were so apparent in this episode, just for people watching, her lack of self-confidence, her self-questioning. And she made, I mean, that halibut dish looked nasty. Mm-hmm. Like just dribbled cream sauce over some fish. That was that was weird. Yeah, and then there was the um, I can't remember what the other one that she made was. It was pak choy the, with salmon skin, and, and that's the one where they were like, the "Where's the salmon?" The fish, and this has almost like a let them eat cake vibe, where you just like toss this stuff on the on the plate. I think that she was thrown off a little bit by not understanding the progression of the meal because different people were just kind of off on that's their true. own doing their own thing. She obviously, I think, got up to the edge of kind of being like. I would have been better had Dawn made a call earlier on what she was doing. I thought doing that on- was fair. She said that and they still embraced and understood it. Yeah, I think so. And I don't think Dawn was unaware that what she was doing, because she says after like she finally gets it out, it's kind of like somebody who's like, this is going to be the process and this is the way it's going to go. And I know you're not going to love it, but I need to do it this way. And then at the end, apologized for like understanding yeah. that that was probably a chaotic way of doing things. So, I mean, like, look, Of that other team, Sarah, Gabe, Dawn, and Chris, Chris is probably the person who has been in the most precarious positions throughout the season. So contextually speaking, if you were going to not just do a little, um, if you weren't just going to say like blind taste test, who had the best and worst food of this group, I think Chris would have found himself maybe drawn into the bottom there. Except for the ice cream. The ice cream. And yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, the Sarah thing was like, she, she to me, and we, we've talked about her and Shota being the favorites for, for quite a while. I don't remember a favorite like that going out at Restaurant Wars. Except for last night's judge, Kristen. Kristen. That was very instructive that she was there. That was one of the more shocking things to happen over the last few seasons. I mean, that was already eight seasons ago, hard to believe. But it also led to one of the more stunning and dramatic runs on Top Chef, where she basically hand fought her way out of the underworld like a vengeful Orpheus and emerged in the finale and just housed everyone and including Brooke who would later win, you know, who would win a later season. So that was interesting to see. I don't know how many episodes are left of last chance kitchen before someone's back. It could be as many as four or five, which makes it very challenging to do, but Mm -hmm. doable. And depending on her nerve level of nerves and who falls out of the competition, she is in a position to do what a few people have done before. I would not count that out. We are recording this, obviously, before Last Chance Kitchen has premiered. She may already right. be out by the time you hear it. I don't think so. But we should do a revised power rankings. I think there's a clear, clear, clear number one. Yeah, I think Shoda's still the number one in the clubhouse. Shoda's absolutely clubhouse favorite. Dawn coming up fast, so, which is something you should say about an Olympian. So food-wise... Like this episode to me was about the difference between eating and dining. You know, mm-hmm. like there there were so many things that went into that first team's win that had to do with like these little touches. You know, like this, like making sure mm-hmm. that the the meal took one step and then in the next step and then the next mm-hmm. step and got from A to B. And also making sure that your diners were happy along the way. And even when there might be a misstep in terms of coursing or progression, I think that that was sort of the the sting was taken out because there was somebody there to be like, can I fill up your glass? How you Mm -hmm. doing? Make a little joke about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. As soon as things started going wrong for the second team, it was made that much worse by the fact that the judges had no one else to talk to but themselves to be like, they're fucking up over there. They're messing up. So yeah, I think Shota's there. I think Dawn, I think it might be the edit that she's getting, but they have like, that. they've definitely obviously 
like made it clear that she is an amazing chef who can get in her own head. And in a finale kind of situation, I don't mm-hmm. know if she can pull off the I'm just going to wait for the ingredients to speak to me thing when it's like, no, make me the True. perfect meal. But once they speak to each other, they're singing. I mean, Dude, that, I'm, what she's I'm, coming up with. I'm definitely cheering for her. So it's it's not a matter of not wanting it. Last thing I would throw in there is Byron is surprising me. Yeah, Byron's he, good. He, he came in with this really big uh, resume. I think he worked at 11 Madison Park. Um, he did, yeah. Pre-Vegs. And, and then, what's that? Pre-Vegs. Before, went, before yeah. I went Vegs. Yeah. Um, so he was very impressive on paper, but he didn't really distinguish himself so much in the first few weeks. His technical skills are really impressive. And the thing about the show that they've gotten so good at is revealing people's character and spirit and you know who they are underneath it. And his phone call with his parents was very moving. That has nothing to do with whether he'll win or not. But it did, the quieting of the season, fewer and fewer people in the kitchen, is allowing him to stand out more. And uh, I think that his ability, sometimes people catch fire at the right time. And so I would put him in the top five now as well, along with Gabe. Shoda, Dawn, and we only got, got? Se- we only got seven people left. So Chris, Chris, and Jamie would be the last two. Then. So Jamie would be the next person. I think. I, I, I think Chris got lucky because he made a good ice cream. All right. Well, we can wrap it up there. We can get into my uh, interview with Ron Moore. Andy and I will be back on Monday with Mayor of Easttown Talk. Uh, I'm really excited for the last two episodes, and we've got some cool guests lined up. Hopefully, uh, for the rest of that show's run. Until then, have a great weekend, everybody. Great interview, Bransky. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands Still. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I'm so excited to uh, be joined on the Watch Podcast by Ron Moore, who is responsible for one of my favorite shows of all time in Battlestar Galactica and one of the best shows uh, currently on the air, currently of 2021 for All Mankind, its second season aired this year. And Ron, thanks so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. 
Glad I was on. wondering whether or not, uh, yeah, I'm still trying to get, wrap my mind around how Apple shows specifically are being received these days because obviously, like everybody is sort of processing TV in their own little discrete chambers these days. I was wondering whether or not you noticed a, a distinctively different response to the second season this year, whether it was critically or whether in terms of fans, because it, for lack of a better term, it felt like it took a kind of like a leap in, in some ways. Uh, yeah, definitely a, a different response. Uh, second season, I think for a variety of reasons, you know, one was when we launched, I tended to see a lot of comment and reviews or just reactions to, to people to the show that were also talking about Apple as a service and the network and a lot of the press really reviewed the site. And then we were one of the shows that, that, that people would talk about. And I think we kind of got lost in the shuffle to a certain extent. And then people had, you know, thoughts about the season for a season and uh, definitely some people not quite understanding what the, what the premise of the show was, or at least where it was going and what the ambition of it was. And didn't seem like uh, history had changed enough for, for some reviews. Oh, it's too slow. And, and that kind of stuff. And, second season you know we had made creative changes on the one hand we also launched at a point where there wasn't a lot of you know suddenly there was a lot less content because of the pandemic and we sort of had a moment in time where you know we kind of had the spotlight to ourselves and then people i think also saw the promise of the show like oh now i get what they're going for oh now it's jumped in years and oh i see how these things they set up season one are now paying off and yeah it's just it's been it's been great it's been gratifying to sort of see okay just give us a little time you're going to see what we're going for i was wondering if you could take me a little bit behind this curtain in terms of what you're going for because i i'm fascinated by how you guys must write this show and i was wondering whether or not you know if, if to the extent that you're comfortable could you tell me a little bit about how you sort of balance writing the history of the show and writing the future of the show and maybe even the past of the show to some extent with what you want out of the characters and the journeys you want to different characters to go on is there is it bifurcated where there's this sort of like one whiteboard where everything that's happening in the world is sort of happening and then another whiteboard where the characters are or can you just tell me a little bit about what goes into writing this the show well uh we started with the timeline like when the show was hadn't even been picked up yet but we were still conceiving it developing it and i was putting the writer's room together and we had the concept of what the show was and knew it was going to, you know, go, go by decades and go into the, you know, start in the past and move, move down through the years and to sort of show the, the, the scope and the scale of the evolving space program. Because, you know, uh, since the idea was to show the space program, we didn't get and to see what could have been possible. You could only really do that if you were willing to jump fairly aggressively through time, because otherwise you would just never get out of the seventies and you'd never get even past really the shuttle era. So it was always sort of set up with this idea it was going to be this sort of generational show. So the first document that I really sat down and wrote was a timeline, a historical timeline, starting with the, the inciting incident and just kind of literally going through the years and sort of tracking big historical events and, and changes in the program. And I just kind of did it off the top of my head because I enjoy that kind of thing. I like world building and I like history. So it was a fun puzzle for me to kind of like, okay, well, what's the alternate timeline that we're kind of building from? And after that, and then we kind of built out the framework. And, and basically, you know, I looked at that timeline not too long ago, and we've stuck to a lot of it. You know, there's some things have changed and some things didn't come to pass, but the general skeleton is still kind of there. Uh, in the writer's room, we tend to focus on, you know, a season at a time. You know, season one, then we sort of, at the very beginning, we mapped out sort of what a seven-year journey would be on the show, like seven decades worth of 
a general story. Like here's, here's a roughly a framework for each of the seasons and some ideas of sort of how it's all going to map out. And then we said, okay, set that aside. Now let's really focus on the first season. Second season was the same thing. And basically you're talking primarily about the characters, how, what they're going to do this year, what's their individual journey, what's their character arcs. And you know, what have we learned about Baldwin and what's going to happen with, with Karen and Tracy and all that. And then you're saying, okay, this season, second season is about the Cold War. And it's going to get to a Cuban Missile Crisis in Space finale. Okay, now let's map onto that where we want to take these characters, right? And so that's kind of the general way we approach it. In terms of the political events and the, the alternate history, um, we just kind of do a lot of that on the fly. We talk a lot about in the room. We talk about, okay, what were the important things of this decade? What's the history of the 80s? What do we set up? In season one, what are the dominoes that would fall as a result? Well, Ted Kennedy was president, and but Ted Kennedy has a sex scandal, and we know Ronald Reagan's going to be president, and it's going to happen four years earlier. Okay, how does that affect his administration? What is his focus? Oh, KAL zero goes down this year. That's perfect for us. Let's work that into the story. And it's just a lot of back and forth with us, with all the writers kind of chiming in and talking about possibilities and what are the pop cultural moments that we can work in? You know, what are the geopolitical things we want to work in? But always kind of bringing it back to, well, how does this affect Baldwin? How does this affect our story? How does this, why do this event? Uh, is it important or is it something we just put on a TV screen in the background? There's just kind of a fun Easter egg about alternate history. Or is it something that's going to fit you know, organically and importantly into the story we're telling this year? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that I love about this show is that I think that there's a version of this that could be very easily bogged down with the the butterfly f effect stuff. And in this, it's more like Lennon, John Lennon lives, but it's so, sort of more of a thread that goes through the second season as you just kind of see his presence around and his sort of advocate advocacy for peace, which right. was what he was doing at the end of his life. But it's not something where it's like, well, if John Lennon lived... I mean, what does that mean for Keith Richards and Mick Jagger then? <laughs> and like this sort right. of like ripple effect, right. which I, I guess the reason why I was asking though is because, you know, there's this romantic notion that you hear writers sometimes talk about where it's just like, well, I just let the characters just sort of tell me where they're going to go. And in, in this case, I would imagine that there would be this tension of the characters can tell you where they want to go, but then there is also this force of history that you're also contending with that is going to probably impact where those characters want to go. Yeah, there's definitely a, a tension between those two ideas as we work through everything, you know, and there's certain events that are important for the show. And then there's just fun things like the John Lennon thing was something I just wanted to do and thought it would be an a great little background uh, piece of material and other sort of passing references or a, a newspaper headline you might see. And those kind of are all ascribed to sort of the butterfly effect of things kind of being different. Let's have some fun with that. And then other things are really important building blocks historically but then inter have to intersect with our characters like apollo soyuz oh here's an idea it was actually in the 70s let's work that into our narrative okay what's the how would how and why would they do something like apollo soyuz in our version of reality and then you, you start working through you know how that all plays together but it's definitely yeah you kind of go back and forth between the character arc and the the architecture of the show which is sort of moving you in a certain direction it's made a little bit easier by the fact that it's not just a show that's just a general alternate history, right? Mm -hmm. We're following a specific group of people in a specific organization. And that organization is providing the organizing principle for the whole series. So it's always 
and saying, okay, the space program, space exploration, that's our focus in this alternate world. How is the exploration of space in an expanded way driving our story and pulling in? If our characters aren't involved in the space program, they're probably not in the show. Much. Right. Do you feel uh, any sort of, uh, I, I guess, speaking of this tension, and you know, and obviously the second season is, it builds up to this incredibly heartbreaking but also very sweet climax with with gordo and tracy uh sacrificing themselves and you literally have these characters that obviously you're very affectionate towards and viewers develop like this long long-standing relationship with kind of sacrificed at the the feet of of your history and at the feet of events is that different than say a character leaving the show or dying off on a, on a on a series you've worked on that was purely a work of fiction, that was purely kind of just like, oh, it's time, this character has reached the end of their journey versus this needs to happen because otherwise we've kind of checkmated ourselves into a place where the, the moon is uninhabitable for thousands of years unless somebody saves this space station. No, it was actually very similar because we didn't really plan for Tracy and Gordo to, to die at the end. Like that wasn't part of the master plan for the series at all, or if for even the season. And it wasn't until we were working out the end game of the season, we were working through sort of the story structure of the finale, and we knew we had these three big pieces. You had Pathfinder, Apollo Soyuz, and the, the, the confrontation on the moon. And we were talking about how we were going to resolve each of those. And it felt like, A, there had to be a sacrifice to be made. It, it felt like a little too easy if everyone just accomplished their mission without, any, without anything going wrong. And you start figuring out, well, okay, where could something go wrong and where, where could a sacrifice happen? And someone pitched out, well, you know, I mean, this crazy run across the moon, I mean, Gordo, maybe Gordo dies in it. We all go, ah, oh, no, that's terrible. We don't want to lose Gordo. And then it was, well, maybe it's not even Gordo. Maybe Tracy takes the run. Oh, I don't want to kill Tracy either. Well, what if they both go? Ah, oh, now I really don't want to do it. And there was a lot of resistance. And we all just kind of pushed the idea aside. And it wasn't, it took a, a few weeks for us to, the story just kept coming back. Yeah, as we were working through the 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 the, uh, the material, it was just the undeniable end. It was a very organic ending, not just to the story, but also to their characters. We ca- we kind of took a hard look at Tracy and Gordo and said, "Well, we had plans for them in season four. Were they that great? Are we gonna are we gonna tell a better story for the end of Gordo and Tracy than this ending?" And we couldn't answer that question other than no, and it was just something you had to kind of face like this is the best ending to their story and it's the best ending to the season so we should do it so it really was kind of driven by a very sort of organic uh kind of process in the writer's room did the actors get a vote there they did not <laughs> we, we told them uh, after we made the, the decision and you know it was very it's hard it's hard to tell an actor something yeah. like that and they were very gracious you know, and shocked and you know but under, but com- when we explained it to them and what was going to happen and why they were like oh we get it I, I, I totally understand well I imagine it's a different kind of gig right it's not it's not really like Ozark that's going to be this compressed story about these people doing this one thing and if they get out or not and there's obviously death is sort of always around the corner this is what, what I mean, the f- most fascinating part about this project to me is the idea that it's a generational story and that the, yeah. the before all mankind that we will probably get when this show is over will be comprised of a in like all likelihood a totally different cast. I mean, it's almost baked into yeah. the gig, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, that was something we talked about at the inception was this is I've never seen this structure done before, really, on an ongoing series. And um, actually, the only reference I had which really no one else in the room even knew was there was a mini series called Centennial 
that aired in the 1980s, which I saw and I, I loved when I was in high school or whenever I saw it. And it was based on a James Michener book. And it basically told the story of this town of Centennial, Colorado, starting from the dinosaurs. And it was a centennial story, uh, a, a, sorry, a, a generational story. And it was fascinating to get attached to characters, watch them grow old, then see their children supplant them in the narrative and then happen all over again. And, and I knew that as, an, as a theory, it could work. And, uh, but no one else had ever seen anything like that. And it, it was sort of a, a big challenge to try to make that, okay, let's really do this as an ongoing television series. You know, you've obviously had experience in a bunch of different, very important phases of TV history. And I was curious, as you, you're sort of embarking on this, this very adventurous idea of telling a story that is actually going to, you know, step-by-step step walk through this, this alternate history, you know, this almost seems... In, in some ways, it's old-fashioned because it's imagining a show that goes on for, for quite some time, but it, it's almost very progressive at this time because you do see so many shows that are limited series, or even if they're not, they behave like limited series in the amount of plot that they burn in any given episode or, or so. Do you see yourself as sort of like doing something that goes against the tide with this, or, or is this actually uh, a pretty traditional idea? No, I did feel like we were we were doing something that was different. We, we, you know, we, we felt that in the room a lot as we were doing structure and we just were like, wow, I mean, you'd catch yourself and go, yeah, but next season they're going to be 10 years older. And, you know, oh wait, that's a whole different thing. And a lot of these characters, some of them we may leave behind at some point. Oh, that's going to be hard. The setting is going to change. And on a production challenge, it's like, oh yeah, we have to reinvent the sets every year, you know, and the (laughs) costumes and everything has to kind of change. It's like you're creating almost a new show every season. And so there's a lot of challenges associated with that that none of us had ever faced, which is exciting and scary, you know, all, all at the same time. As you get closer to, I mean, I was, I was, I obviously the season would be, would, would comprise a lot of events that you, you were present for and that, you, you know, you, you were uh, a spectator for. As you move through your own life, as this story is being told, do you find your relationship to the story changing a little bit because of where you were, say, in the early 80s or in the 90s for season three? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I, I mean, it's very, it very much, it's rooted very much in my own experience because I was like five years old when Apollo 11 happened. And I have a memory of Apollo 11, but it's, it's at the primeval part of my memory, right? And as the series goes on, you're moving through just kind of my memory of the 70s and pop culture and music and strongly in the 80s, you know, in the 80s, it's very, that's very present for me still. And now we're talking about the 90s and so on. And it is kind of going back over the course of my life like yeah. in, a, in, an odd, in a very odd way. Do you find yourself seeing parts of yourself in any of the characters? Uh, yeah, all of them in different ways. I mean, I, I, I've always sort of felt that on all the shows I've worked on, there's never been really a particular character that is really a stand-in for me, but they all have aspects of my personality or things I've thought about or th- things I've felt or experienced or happened to family members. So I kind of see myself in, in, in pieces of almost all of them. I saw that uh, in another interview, you mentioned that you try not to watch sci-fi when you're making sci-fi that you try not to take on sci-fi when you're when you're making anything that could could be called sci-fi what do you watch when making for all mankind what kind of stuff odd stuff winds up influencing this i was curious whether you watch things from the late 60s early 70s or the 80s that might be on in the background of these people's lives or is there an odd influence here that that we wouldn't know unless unless we talk to you 
No, nothing. I mean, I don't. I yeah. I tended. I thought when I started on this project in particular that I'd end up playing a lot of like you know period music or something while I was writing, and that just ended up distracting me. And so I don't even do that. You know, I I don't. I, I sort of really separate my relaxation time from my work time, unless there's something I really have to watch for work or a specific reference. Or like I went back and watched a lot of episodes of the Bob Newhart show because mm. I wrote that episode in season one. And, but that was work, right? It wasn't really kind of inspiring me and giving me ideas. It was like, okay, this is a, a homework assignment I had to go do. So uh, there wasn't really anything in particular that I've been watching that really influenced it other than, you know, I'm always watching an episode or two of Seinfeld. You know, so there's always like odd Seinfeld references and influences and in probably everything <laughs> I do. You know, I think that would be pretty surprising for most people to hear from if yeah. they've watched your work. Do you feel like uh, this is sort of a two-parter? But I, I think I really respond to the fact that even though it's a period piece, the visual language and the sort of look of the show feels very contemporary, but it also feels very like discreet. From it, it, it doesn't feel like it's got like you know, Amblin lens flares or like overly d- done visual nods to a certain era. Do you think though, as the, the show goes on that you could imagine a, a for all mankind that looks drastically different as much as it might feature different characters? Yeah, I think so. I think that's part of the language of what we're doing. I mean, we started doing subtle things in season two, even uh, in terms of outer space photography. If you look back at season one, we were very careful to never show the stars while you're in space because the cameras in real space just can't really actually photograph them. You know, it's too, there's too much contrast. If you see an astronaut, you see the space vehicle in foreground, you never see the, the stars in background. And the only time we ever broke that in season one was when we, we did a pan up shot from Deke's grave up to the stars. And we kind of felt like, well, as, as you left the lunar surface and the bright contrast that suddenly you would see the stars come out. Season two, we started breaking that a little bit more. You started when there were certain sequences in cinematography, especially around the dark side of the moon and Pathfinder looking out the windows, you started to see like stars. And we said to ourselves, well, that's part, that's in some ways, you know, indicative of the fact that the technology of the show is portraying, is, is, is accelerating at a faster pace. And so it, we kind of talked generally about as the show evolved, you could start you know, doing doing different saturation levels. You could start playing around a little bit with the cinematography that would also give you a sense of time and change and moving from one era to another. That's so cool. Yeah, I I, I think that you know I the outer space sequences especially. I think I can see what you're talking about because a lot of the Houston stuff I think is actually like it feels very grounded in a way that you know is is almost when you go to space, it feels special, you know, visually it feels special. You kind of know that you're somewhere else. I know that your relationship to the show is changing a little bit as you move to do stuff with Disney. What would be like the sort of major change to like your day-to-day work on the show? Oh, it's just that it's no longer day-to-day. I mean, you know, I don't, I'm not the day-to-day showrunner anymore. Matt and Ben Ben are who I co-created the show with. And that was always kind of the intention. And day-to-day show running is a very intense process especially in the first year because in the first year uh as the run as a showrunner you're making all key decisions that influence everything kind of all the time well what color you know are we using what's our color palette oh what's the style of the music what's the editorial thing you know does the character do this and the character do that and you're making like fundamental choices all through the first season that then imprint themselves on what the, the series is now as you get into the second third and, and hopefully beyond uh, seasons you have fewer of those fundamental choices to make, right? And you can hand it off to somebody else who's like now going to take it and make all the same. There's lots of day-to-day stuff, the casting, 
budget meetings, scheduling, you know, that really the, the hard work, breaking every story in detail in the writer's room. Now they can carry that and I can go, I'll go do something else. Do you get a kick out of that day-to-day work still? I do at times. Yeah. The, the first season is really engaging and really fun because it's all new territory. It's all doing something for the first time. Second season is, is, is like, okay, let's do it again. You know, let's do it again and again. And it's not quite as much fun on the second season, just because you've done, you know, you've, you've done the, the fun. I mean, this particular show is a little unique in that you are kind of reinventing it every year. So there's still a little bit of pizzazz in the, oh, well, what's the 1980s version of the show, right? Uh, but yeah, I get tired of budget meetings and I get tired of production meetings after a while. I've done so many of them down through the years that I'm, you know, I don't miss that aspect of the job. I, what I do miss is I miss being in the writer's room with the writers every single day. You know, that's the most fun of the job, that and editorial where you're in the cutting room with the editors. And I've tried to preserve those two ends, like the beginning and the end are still the places I, I have the most participation. I do sit in, in some of the writer's room conversations. I still read scripts and I still come in at the end and, and work on the cut and everything in between. I kind of have walked away from. That's really interesting. Yeah. I would imagine that like the 13th time you're sort of chatting about what, what should be on what shelf in the bar, <laughs> you know, in, in Houston, you probably are like, yeah, I got it. I got it. Yeah. I'm on the record. Yeah, like, okay. The last question I wanted to ask you is just about the nature of the ensemble, which we've sort of noted is, is in flux and, and can change over the course of the seasons. But I think a lot of TV now is geared around sort of primary lead performances, like one, two, maybe three people who are really driving shows. And the thing that I love about uh, Mankind is that you you can make the argument that any number of half a dozen people are like the protagonist of the show in some ways. And uh, I I guess I was going to ask you, do you feel like that that's sort of becoming a lost art is writing for an ensemble in that way? And, and, and have you heard any kind of feedback about what certain characters might mean to people when they when they see them on, on the screen? I guess I hadn't thought about the fact that the ensemble is a dying breed. I mean, I never really thought about it like that. Um, but I guess you're right. I guess as I think through shows, there are less of them. I mean, Game of Thrones is certainly a big ensemble with lots yeah. of characters that you would highlight. You know, depending on what the, what the story what the story was. I like that a lot. I like. I think a lot of that came from not just Star Trek, but also Battlestar, where we had a, a core group of characters at the very beginning and a lot of sort of, you know, what started out as secondary supporting roles. And bit by bit, we just kept expanding the definition of the show and increasing the size of the family. And it just made the world richer and it made the stories richer. And I, I got a lot of enjoyment uh, as a creator out of that. And so doing the same thing in Mankind was just fun. Here's the, the core group, but let's keep expanding. Let's keep, you know, including those people that just showed up for an episode and they felt like a guest star, but let's, let's show Irene Hendricks again. Let's like, and Bill Strasser, let's, you know, let's, let's keep uh, the whole family together, even as we're moving through a generational style. Yeah, it's really cool. Well, yeah, I hear a lot of comment on people who identify with certain characters or who don't like certain characters. Yeah. You always get sort of the, you get the, those two reactions of the people. I really don't like him or her. And then, Oh my God, I just love you know him. And uh, certainly when, when Gordo and Tracy uh, went down, suddenly it was like all these Gordo Tracy people came out of the woodwork. Sure. Where everyone, the people I, I had spoken to people about the show, you know, just friends of mine or acquaintances many times. And I, there were people that never even mentioned Gordo and Tracy. Suddenly they were like, oh my God, they were my favorite characters. Yeah, it's Jack I and Rose on the Titanic or something. Yeah, yeah. like suddenly, <laughs> like, really? I never heard you even mention Gordo and 
trade you before now, but now they're your, they're your favorite characters. Well, public opinion is a powerful thing. Um, Ron, thank you so much yeah. for joining me, man. I, I won't take you in more time. It was a pleasure to talk to you, and I, I'm such a huge fan of your work on the show. Uh, well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Watch. As always, we are produced by Kaya McMullen, and we'll be back with you next Monday.